Create Out Loud is brought to you by Anchor.fm. And if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast so you can, yes, create out loud. It's free. They give you tools so you can record easily on your phone or your computer. They'll distribute the podcast for you. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started. Because yeah, I want you to create out loud. Everybody, it's Jen Loudon back with another episode of Create Out Loud, the podcast that gets into the nitty gritty of the creative life and helps you add new insights and ideas, perspectives, and tools to your creativity toolkit so you can create out loud. Our guest today is Tamako Byer, and she is the author of numerous books of poetry, including Last Days, which is an extraordinarily beautiful and healing book of poetry. But before we dive in to talk to Tamako about her different kind of book launch, her work in social justice, why she wrote this book of poetry for social justice uh, organizers and healers and cultural workers, I just want to talk about the idea of poetry itself. Because poetry has so many misconceptions, even now with the rise of Rumi's amazing popularity and Mary Oliver, that poetry is somehow for the elite, that it's special, or that you have to be smart, or you have to decode a poem. And what could poetry poetry possibly have to do with social justice? Well, if you're ready to have some of those misconceptions thrown out the door, then you want to keep listening. Oh, and if you wonder, like, I'm not a poet, so how is she going to help me create out loud? Oh, you just wait. Here we go. So, Tamako, you wrote, how can we reclaim play and wonder as an anti-racist, anti-capitalist act? How can we engage in play and wonder and delight for their own sake while also working towards serious radical change? Yes. How? Can we dive into that question? I mean, it excites me so much to read that and to read your Substack newsletter. I mean, I just went through and read it all after I discovered your work. And I'm like, I get chills, but I'm also like, really? Mm Because that feels like I'm suddenly not going to be serious about my activism. Right. Oh, there's like so much. But to, to, to talk about play, I mean, play is really... I was thinking about this over the weekend. It's really like a practice for living, right? I live in a I live in a very urban area, but there's also like all these little baby ducks and baby rabbits and all sorts of puppies. They're playing, you know, they're practicing how to be in the world. And so I think about play as kind of a place where you can or we can experiment and um, let our imaginations really one, run wild. There's the, the stakes are pretty low when you're playing, um, but That's that doesn't, point. yeah, it doesn't mean that there's not seriousness that can then arise from what you learn in play. And also um, after I wrote that essay that you were referring to, um, the poet Duriel Harris, <laughs> who spent a lot of time thinking about joy and specifically black joy uh, and joy by people of color um, as a form of resistance. Um, She wrote to me to say that she's been thinking lately that play is actually more dangerous to hegemony than joy. And we're gonna talk about it more soon. We haven't had a chance to connect about it, but since she wrote to me about that, I've been thinking about how play really is a form of subversion, right? Mm -hmm. Like the fool or the gesture in the king's court can say things that no one else can say and play can also make fools of those in power I'm thinking specifically about the yes men I don't know if you know who they are no no. I don't know if they're doing things anymore but um in the early 2000s they're 
just two guys and they just, they play pranks. So I think actually most recently, a, f- a few years ago, they put up a web page. They basically make statements pretending to be corporations, for example, oh. saying like, I actually don't think they did this with Exxon, but I think they did it with a similar corporation being like, yes, we, re- we admit our role in climate change. We're going to pay billions of dollars as reparations, that kind of thing. Um, and, and they make it look really real. And um, the, the logo and the right yes. colors. And, yes. Uh, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, when you were talking about play is even more subversive than joy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can feel that. Even in my own day to day, I was having that sort of, oh my God, I'm so behind. There's so much I have to do. Mm-hmm. And, and then I pause and I'm like, whose voice is that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whose voice is saying that, that you have to get this work done? Play gets us to question things. And then like, I, think I wouldn't play voice... with my puppy then. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that voice really, I think is like capitalism, right? Which is like you have to produce, you have to be working um, to produce so that you can consume. And when you play, you're not, it, it, it's like reclaiming play is like a resistance to that and a resistance to like the commodification of everything we do. Like you can't really, I mean, people try, but um, if you're really reclaiming play, you can't really put a, a price tag on it, right? You're not, you're not doing things to, to create something so that somebody can buy it. You're there's, just... no, there's nothing left afterwards. There's nothing to, to show for it. Right. my quote marks in the air, everybody. <laughs> the other thing that comes up for me is that I have this side project I told you about Create Plus Climate. And I try to get people to think of creative ways to respond to the climate crisis. And part of that is based on this idea of stubborn optimism, that we have to overcome both the the media's tendency, but also our brain's tendency to give up because everything Mm -hmm. is screwed. Mm -hmm. And it seems like play could help with that. I'm not sure how, but to feed Mm -hmm. that stubborn optimism in a way, because when you were talking, it was making me feel optimistic. And Mm -hmm. can I marry that with my stubbornness to keep taking action? Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I was listening to a, a different podcast it's called 70 over 70, where they interview 70 people over the year, uh, 70 years, 70. Yeah, yeah. And one of their guests was talking about basically the difference between hope and optimism. You know, I've heard this phrase, hope is a verb. I hadn't really thought much about it. But in that moment, I was like, oh, actually, like, literally, as a, um, grammatical phrase hope Mm. is a verb and optimism is a adjective or a noun right hope means that you have to actually be engaging and doing it and practicing it and that's the same with play right you have to actually engage in play and practice can't think about it yeah exactly (laughs) exactly you have to go play (laughs) (laughs) and so I wonder if there's something there you know I think you're right like I think the media and I think the media parroting you know what the powers of be want to communicate which is Mm -hmm. that like there is no hope we might as well just consume until the end of the world Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) um it it really can weigh people down weigh us down in terms of thinking about climate crisis um white supremacy like how Mm -hmm. do we change anything 
by the music and staging. Yeah. And and Black folk, you Mm -hmm. know. So to break out of that, I think, leaning into play, leaning into joy, leaning into magic. It's a way to expand our imaginations, really, and to be like, oh, actually, no, this isn't, this isn't how it has to be. This is how it is right now. And those who benefit from it and profit from it would like us to believe that we can't actually change anything, but we can. And um, engaging in the practice of play, I think, really helps us start to see like different ways of being and different ways of relating and different ways of, you know, having an economy. (laughs) Well, that's it, isn't it? We have to expand our imaginations as creators and as people who envision a different world. That to me is such the kernel of what everyday life tries to squeeze out of me and my time anxiety that we talked about in the earlier episode and Laura Knopf all about the different kinds of time anxiety. Expand our imagination. What if that is one of the central things that you have to find practices, ways, and communities to maintain to create out loud, huh? What would that look like? How do you expand your imagination? Want to jot down a couple of ideas right now to yourself? That's brilliant. That makes me, I mean, my heart expand and makes me want to get up and dance. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Yeah. So I know there's (laughs) truth there. My body always says, yeah, there's truth there. Let's pivot to your, to your work as a poet. You do a lot of different kinds of work as a writer, Mm -hmm. but the, and then the new book last days, which I'll Mm -hmm. hold up here for people Mm. on the video to see. And I'd love to (laughs) love for you to read a poem or two from it in a bit. Yeah. What role does play play in your work? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, um, I think that, I think one of the first and best books about writing that I read, that's a funny sentence that I just said. (laughs) We'll just just have a few funny sentences in a row. (laughs) (laughs) But Writing Down the Bones by Natalie Goldberg was so influential to me when I was in high school and, and first starting to think like, oh, writing is something that maybe I could do. And, you know, she really encourages people to just write, to write without stopping, to just go where your imagination takes you. And and I think that that was just so influential for me in um, thinking about writing as a process and as just like the initial act of just not controlling it, not having an agenda just kind of letting it all flow. And so in that way, I feel like it is it is play when I sit down at my notebook or on the computer screen. Sometimes I have an idea of what I want to write, especially if it's an essay. Often for poem, poems, I don't. And I just play, especially with poetry, play with sounds, the, mm. the sounds of language, the images that come up, the associations, and just see where it takes me. And then, of course, the editing process is where like that control and shaping and polish comes from. But the initial drafts, when it went on a good day, <laughs> it, it, it really is, it is um, play. play. Yeah, yeah. Is, is there a moment when, a, when an image or a sound or an idea comes to you and you say, oh, go towards essay, oh, go towards fiction, oh, go towards poetry? Like, is it instinctual? Is it more thought out? I'm, I'm always fascinated by those moments, yeah. those early moments of creation when what form is it going to take? 
Yeah, for me, generally, I know what form it's going to take when I sit down to write. Well, with essays, it's a relatively new form for me. And um, I've really just been writing them for my newsletter. And, you know, I have to put one out at least once a month. I've, I've been trying for twice a month. I have a very regulated schedule that like, I'm very much about structure. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, was I like, am too. Okay. I'm, I'm a huge believer in structure. I think the idea of the muse is so overblown. I always like all the different quotes of the muse will show up on Wednesday if you're showing up. Exactly. Versions <laughs> of people saying that is. Yeah. 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 I found that that's really been true for me in my creative life. Okay. Here's one of those muse quotes that I couldn't remember. This is Stephen King. Your job is to make sure the muse knows where you're going to be every day from nine till noon or seven till three. If he does know, he, what? <laughs> Come on, Stephen King. I assure you that sooner or later, he'll start showing up. Well, okay, forget the he part, but that was the idea. That if you show up, if you have the structure, if you have the regularity, it doesn't have to be every day. We all have lives. We all have mental health challenges and children and pets and parents and rent to pay. So it's not about some kind of impossible standard. That's actually incredibly demotivating. It's about a structure, a rhythm, a clarity. I call them teeny tiny containers in the Oasis and in my writing groups that I lead. Teeny tiny containers. They have a clear beginning and end, and they have a way for you to know, yes, I did what I said. Make and keep clear promises to yourself. (laughs) It's why I've written my email newsletter almost every week, occasionally time off for good behavior, occasionally recycling, for 21 years. All about mindful productivity and create out loud and self-care and all the different things I've been interested in and learning about over those years. It's a structure. Oh my God, I have to write something. It makes you think. It makes you produce. And it's a structure that I could keep up because it was tied to my business. It was tied to making money and making a living. It was tied to helping people and being of service. So what's that structure for you? So I generally like sit down to be like, okay, now I have to write my essay. And then for poetry, I I often, my poems start when I write with others. So other poets, there's Right now, there's this Monday night gathering of BIPOC poets, and it it started, Serena Lynn and Faith Adiele started this uh, gathering when the pandemic started, and it's just been going ever since uh, with some different hosts. But it's like two prompts every night, you write and you share. And that's really been, for the last year and a half, really like where I start my poems. Um, So it's like in community, it's with prompts. And then... I guess there are times where the ideas that come out in my poems get worked into my essays. I imagine the the reverse will be true as well, but um, or is true as as well. But it's not a con. It's not conscious. Like, okay, I'm writing this poem, and now I'm going to go and take this idea and work it into a, an essay. It's really much more subconscious yeah yeah Yeah. speaking of last days would you read one of my favorite poems i I love this poem and then if you want to read one that you particularly love tankas for what comes together at dawn the great blue heron curves the river preens stills as we approach in the narrative of our walk what comes together is a feeling we are the people the dogs, the birds. We emerge from sleep singular, then find each other. And that is the best way of waking. Do you want me to read another? Please. Okay. (laughs) 
Um, this one is Equinox. It's the second Equinox poem of the book. Equinox. Dear child of the near future, here is what I know. Hawks soar on the updraft and sparrows always return to the seed source until they spot the circling hawk. Then they disappear for days and return a full flock ready. I think we all have the power to do what we must to survive. One day I hope to set a table invite you to draw up a chair, greens steaming garlic, slices of bread still warm, honey flecked with wax, and a pitcher of clear water. Sustenance for acts of survival, for incantations stirring across our tongues. Can we climb out of this greedy mouth, disappear, and then return in force? My stars are tucked in my pocket, ready for battle. If we flood the streets with salt water, we can flood the sky with wings. That's so great. That's my other favorite poem in the book. <laughs> what was it like to choose the flow of the book or the structure of the book? Not the individual poem structures, but the whole. Because I imagine there's a lot of that's a process in itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a process. <laughs> <laughs> the poems in this book span almost a decade. My first book came out in 2013. And then I had a, I got a full time, very intense job, right as, uh, as actually I was sending this, the my first manuscript out. And so basically, for a period of seven or so years, I would write poems, but I didn't have a chance to edit them or really do anything with them. Um, and then in 2018, I left that job. And I basically looked at all of these poems I had written over the span of, of those years. And just kind of started pulling through, pulling out themes and threads and sequences. I had written, you know, the, the central sequence of the book that's also called Last Days. I knew that that was going to be like an organizing principle of, of the book, but I wasn't sure what else would go around it or even like whether to have each section, each part of that Last Days poem separate it throughout the book or have it all together. It was a lot of trial and error and spreading papers all over the downstairs floor and um, putting them in little stacks and then like reading through and deciding, do I, does this work? I ended up basically, it's in four sections and I was really thinking about the four seasons and basically this the cycle of the year the wheel of the year the, this idea of the cyclical nature of time or the spiralic nature of time was really something that I've been engaging in a lot like things change but they don't always like things come back to where they were but they're not the same right there's mm -hmm. like there's a change there's a difference there's a development i've just been playing with that idea in my whole life and it seemed like a really interesting way to organize the book and so that's why there's like a solstice and an e there are two solstices and equinox poems because i was thinking about it as the as a cycle of the year for a while i really wanted each section to have a strong elemental association so fire water um, earth and 
air. And I kind of let go of that with the various iterations after a while, but there's still, there is still a little bit of that Mm -hmm. in in each section. I'm so struck by 10 years of writing poems, because I think sometimes as creators, at least this is true for me, I have a real short-term kind of intensity I love the spaciousness of like, I was doing a really intense job. So this other really important part of me mm-hmm. just ha- it was still there, but it couldn't be on the front burner. Mm-hmm. And then what was it like to look at 10 years of work? I mean, were you blown away by what you created at times <laughs> where you like, how did I write that? <laughs> I definitely like had this experience of like, did I really write that? Like, mm-hmm. what is this? Where did it come from? <laughs> Like not really having a memory of writing it. Um, I love that. It's also very odd. It's very like, who wrote that? Yeah. (laughs) But it gave me an ability to really play with the poems because I wasn't tied to them as they were. I didn't feel like, oh, this is like the perfect, precious version of this poem. Of course, because you had so much distance from it. It it can become something else if it needs to. Yeah. And so a lot of poems actually in here are, I took a stanza from this poem and I took a stanza from a poem I wrote like like five years after that. Yeah. (laughs) And like, I'm like, oh, they're speaking to each other across this distance of years. And they actually belong, belong together in the same poem. And so, yeah, that was a really interesting interesting process that is just that makes my imagination tickle you know because it doesn't even have to be your poetry like if someone took a bod- different bodies of work and let it talk to each other in new ways we had uh, a guest on who talked about idea sex and doing this with different <laughs> you know, different authors different mm-hmm. and having them you know talk to each other and figuratively have sex, but you could also do it with different, you could do it with your essay and a poem. You could do it with a piece of film that you made or, oh, it's very exciting to me. I'm going to have to go away and think about that. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, by the way, that episode that mentions idea sex is also the episode with Anne Lorcanoff. And if you're not getting all the episodes of Create Out Loud, you just need to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and then it'll just pop up in your feed. But if you find that confusing, which many people do because podcast technology is so weird, (laughs) it's so scattered everywhere, just go to jenniferloudon.com and sign up for my newsletter. And we send out summaries of podcasts. We send out reminders that it's there. We send out some cool insights that I've had in addition to all kinds of other good things. So just go to jenniferloudon.com. Oh, and you also get a free chapter of my last book, Why Bother? I love that. I love like collaging and um yeah just like I I love what you said that it could be like with a film or uh, you know like the multimedia version of it I love that you've done a really different kind of book launch with the poetry collection last days um can you take us through how that idea got started and then how it was executed because it it didn't look easy (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's it's amazing it's really gotten once again my imagination going about how to um, do future book launches or help people with book launches. But mm-hmm. yeah, so can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, and just to say, I'm still kind of, I'm in the middle of it still. <laughs> so it's not done, but um, it's unfolding. It's unfolding, exactly. Yeah. Uh, which is also, well, I'll, I'll talk about it as I get there, but it is also like um, rethinking like a book launch has to be 
you know, the day or the week that your book launches, uh, you know, hallelujah. Yeah. <laughs> it's that whole, you got to get on a list. you got to get yeah. the bookstore's attention, right? But that model, first of all, we don't have to subscribe to it. And second of all, it is not nearly as monolithic as that. I mean, the right. book has changed so much. And just like you said earlier in the interview, why can't we envision something different? Exactly. Exactly. I'm interrupting. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, that's exactly my thoughts on that. <laughs> so yeah, how did it how did it happen? Well, I, I knew that I wanted to do something different. Um, and I was thinking, you know, I would go on tour, this pre pandemic, I would go on tour and maybe connect with different social justice organizations in the cities that I was going to and invite them to the, you know, bookstore reading and or maybe like have a fundraising party for a couple of them in those different cities. Um, because I knew I wanted to speak to organizers and activists because that's who I wrote this book for. Um, and then the pandemic happened. You know, the first couple months of the pandemic, I was just like not thinking about the book launch at all, you know, thinking about like, how do you get groceries in the house safely? <laughs> and, you know, and do all we of those need things. to wipe everything down or do we not yes. need to wipe everything down? And can you go for a walk with someone or not? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> wear, yes. Remember when we were even like, do you wear masks like before? Yeah. I mean, it seemed like ancient history. It was just over a year ago. I know. I know. So that so when I kind of like realized that the pandemic wasn't going to end anytime in the foreseeable foreseeable future, and um, I had this book launch coming up. Hey, if you're not an author, what is a book launch? Well, in the old days, aka before the rise of Amazon, when there was still Oprah, when there was still really concentrated media. It was doing as much media and getting as much attention as you could in the shortest possible time from the day your book was available for sale so that you could get the bookstores to say, oh my gosh, the book is moving. I'm A, going to order more and B, I'm not going to send it back. Yes, bookstores are about the only retail that I know of that orders on credit and then can send books back for whatever reason because they need the cash back from the publisher for up to a year after they ordered. So that's the old model. Now, it's still in play with independent bookstores, but it's very different with Amazon. And I believe it's also different with Barnes & Noble that's trying to reinvent themselves right now. But the other thing that's changed is very few media appearances move a lot of books now. It used to be that you could know if you got on certain TV shows, certain radio shows, you could really get that buzz going. That's harder and harder to do because our, our attention is split in so many different directions. So you listen to certain podcasts, you follow certain book Instagrammers, or you watch a video on TikTok. You just never know now if something's going to move a lot of books, and it tends to be a lot of little things that you do. And that's much harder to do in a short period of time. But then finally, there's the whole reimagining that we're exploring on this podcast. How can we have more sustainable lives as creatives? What are the economic models that we can create? And do we have to buy into the ones that exist? And if we do, can we do it in a way that is reflective of our values? That's what I'm curious about. And I think it's an essential part of creating out loud. I just tried to think about it and got super overwhelmed um, by the uncertainty of it, by the, by the feeling like this was like sometime in the summer and I felt like 
I had wanted like a year to plan my book launch and I had, you know, mm-hmm. I was already like behind. I wasn't really behind, but I felt like I was behind. And so there was just a lot of anxiety and unhappiness <laughs> in our household around this. Oh my and, gosh. Um... I was going through the same thing, launching a book. And I was, I got so frozen and so anxious and yeah. so depressed for the first yeah. time in, I hadn't been depressed in years. I would leave my little office here and go across my deck to my bed and just crawl in my bed in the middle of the day. And yeah, it was weird. Yeah. It was, it, it I was mean, really hard. I feel like the pandemic kind of made everything really intense. So it makes sense that, you know, we're yeah, launching a book. hard enough. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> and it's like vulnerable. You're like putting yeah. yourself out there. Yeah. So my partner who is amazing, Patty Lynn, um, she, she's like, my love and she's also like my co-conspirator and like real partner creative partner um so and she's an organizer um of people not closets (laughs) 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 so she was like talking me through my my anxiety and she was like well who do you want like who do you want to know about this book and i said organizers activists healers cultural workers like people doing the work to change this world and so she was like, well, why don't you just give them the books? <laughs> and I was like, how would I do that? <laughs> well, in addition to being an organizer, she's also an amazing fundraiser. So she's like, we'll just raise the money to make it happen. And I was like, okay. Um, and I also like, I, I know how to fundraise. I, I think fundraising is like a really central part to social change to like talk to people about money and ask mm-hmm. them to put their money where their values are. So we came up with this plan. I made a whole budget. So I was like, okay, I think I want to give away like 250 copies um, of this book that that feels like doable. And then I also want to do this big event with speakers um, from organizations and, you know, bringing artists and organizers together um, and do a teaching guide. I, I made that whole plan. I made the whole schedule, which was like supposed to end in April. Now it's like ending in September, I think. Made it much more spacious <laughs> as we went. But yeah, then I just started asking my networks, my family, my family's friends, uh, my friends to fund the project. And I raised $15,000 altogether. I was doing that. I was thinking, this is great to do for me. But like, if I'm putting all of this energy in it, I also want to be supporting and uplifting other writers of color so how do I do that also part of like rethinking how we do things like I'm not interested in competing or the scarcity mindset I mean that's how I feel about this podcast yeah I think that's actually like a very artistic impulse in Eulabis's having and being had she talks about how she first and maybe the only time experienced the gift economy was with other poets and I do think that's just like poets and artists like we make things and we want to give them away like imposing the market on it I think is really it's it's not I don't I don't want to say natural because what is natural but I I don't think it's like the artistic impulse isn't to like make something to sell it it is really to make things to share and to share mm-hmm. with other people um, and and to uplift other people like you were saying one of the things that happens a lot when I work with creators and writers more intimately is is that getting the word out and making money 
surviving or thriving, but then that same impulse, it's the fear of vulnerability and being seen and not being good enough gets mixed Mm -hmm. in with, I don't want to be part of the marketplace, Mm -hmm. but also gets mixed Mm -hmm. in with, but I don't want to do that job anymore. I just want to do my art. It's complicated. It's hard to tease out in ways. I don't know know that any of us ever tease it out perfectly. And I think that's really important too. Like Michelangelo didn't tease it out perfectly. He hated the popes. He had to kiss their asses. (laughs) We still live in a capitalist society and we still have to pay the bills and we have to figure that part out. But I want our work to be shared. And so I think for me, I was just thinking about like, how do I navigate capitalism in a way that feels like most aligned with my values and how I want to do this book launch? And so I love that. Because again, this is the theme of the conversation for me. It's that wonder and play and magic to step mm-hmm. out of the mold of it has mm-hmm. to be this way and just question it. And your partner played such a wonderful role in that. Right. Just a word about Michelangelo and all those popes. He worked under nine different popes. But you know, in 1530, to escape the wrath of, I think it was Julius II, Michelangelo had to hole up in a tiny secret room under the Medici Chapel. (laughs) He had been working on a lavish tomb for Julius II, and he got into serious trouble. And with nothing but time on his hand while he was hiding, what did he do? He drew. So why am I telling you this? Because we tend to have fantasies that if some patron would just come and give us all the money and time in the world, everything would be great. And it's never going to be like that. I mean, we explore this all the time in these episodes, right? It's always a messy, messy intersection between our life and our work between creating out loud and sharing our work, making a living, hiding, being vulnerable. And if we can accept the mess and we don't wait for some fantasy, it's just going to save us a lot of time and energy that we can put towards our work. I found um, Gabrielle Savelle, who is a Black performance artist and writer. And I had seen her perform a while ago and and just really loved her stuff. And she had a a chapbook that was coming out around the same time, although the pandemic has delayed its printing. So it's going to come out uh, at the end of this month. But she was super excited about the project. I raised enough money to buy 250 copies of my book and her chapbook, and we're sending it out to to folks. And yeah, we just put it put out a call. I, I asked a few of five people in my life, poets and organizers and artists, to be like an advisory council to me. I called them the Catalyst Circle, and um, they helped me come up with the plan, and they helped me do outreach to organizations who. Uh, might be interested in this. So we just kind of spread the word really widely. The people just started signing up to get the book, to get both books. Um, and it was really just kind of exciting to see every every day I would check the, you know, Google form spreadsheet and be like, oh, this person from Black Lives Matter is signing up. This person from a reproductive justice organization is signing up. All From all over the country, even like places like the UK and the Czech Republic. I'm not exactly sure how we're going to get the books to them, but we'll figure it out. So yeah, it was just like thrilling to see that people were really, I didn't know, I didn't know if people would sign up. I didn't know if this would seem like such a wild idea that um, nobody would, would do it, but it got really people excited. And, and I think this idea of like, you don't have to have a book launch. That's the traditional book launch. You can figure out like who your audience is and how to get your work to them has really 
been resonating with other poets that I've talked to who are, and other writers who are rethinking, like, how are they going to do it? That was kind of my hope too, is like, I would love to just keep talking about this and share like my lessons learned and, you know, um, so that other people can make their own version of it. Um, that's, that feels right, more right to them than maybe what we all have been told what we need to do when we launch a book. So speaking of lessons learned, anything that you would do differently? I did just try and pack everything into the, the like, everything has to be done by the time my book launched. And that just like caused a lot of stress and like un undue stress. <laughs> <laughs> unneeded. So, um, unneeded, yeah. So then I did have this understanding, like I couldn't make my whole year a book launch year, you know, so I like made it much more spacious. So I, I definitely think giving yourself the space to do what you, you need to and want to do in a timeline that's, you know, like you're going to get it done in a way that feels right and healthy to you. That, that was definitely a, a main lesson. And I think the other lesson is just, I had to figure out how to talk about this project because it is so outside of what many people think about. So I had to like, articulate and re-articulate the project um, to reach different audiences. Yeah, that's um, so important. You do write in your job, so you mm -hmm. do have a lot of skills around that articulation, but it's yeah. usually the hardest thing to do for our own work. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and you should yeah. sign up to get a copy because you'll really <laughs> like it. <laughs> right. I had what I asked a friend of my parents and she like donate and she donated and she's like, I don't really understand this, but I trust you. And I was like, well, that's so kind and generous of you, but that means I need to like right. figure out how to <laughs> articulate how to it make better. It more clear, yeah. yeah. And we have so little time with people's attention span now, you know, yeah. 10 mm -hmm. seconds or so before they'll get confused and go away. Well, really fascinating. So I'm going to switch topics for a second. I want to ask about a wonderful essay again on your Substack newsletter about growing up speaking both English and Japanese. You wrote, as a result, I internalized two very different worldviews, approaches, and spiritualities in my language and in my body and in my thoughts. Somehow, I was able to move through my childhood holding the worldview that the individual was most important and also that the collective was most important, that everything and everyone was connected and also that we we're all islands onto ourselves, that things could and should be separated and categorized into white and black, alive and not alive, and also that nothing can be separated, that things are animated with spirit, that there is a whole rainbow of color between black and white. So can you take us into how you perceive and work with language as a writer because of this? I became a poet because of this, because of um, how I understood that the world is not just one thing, that it's much bigger than how a single language would frame it as. And the way we categorize things based on culture, based on language. And I feel like poetry is a way that really, as close as possible in my, in my own personal experience, to being able to hold all of the complexities and contradictions and mysteries of the world because it uses language, but in often in a very nonlinear way, often in a way that really relies on leaps of imagination and associations, um, associations not necessarily even based on meaning, but maybe based on sound or the texture of the word in your mouth. 
for me, when I enter into poetry, it's a, it's a whole different way of reading. You know, I'm not reading for meaning and to, to get a logical argument out of it. I'm, I'm reading to really to enter into the world of the poem. And that's kind of how I hope to create poems that do that for the reader. I think there is something magical about poetry. I'm, I'm actually working on a new book, two other poets called Poetry of Spellcasting, or it's oh. about poetry spellcasting. I don't know what the title will end up being. I love you know? that. <laughs> but yeah, it really is like casting a kind of spell out into the world. And I think I arrived at that way of understanding poetry from growing up with two different languages and worldviews kind of really in my head and in my body and in my heart you know I think that's that's the story I tell anyway uh, right we're always how I became we're doing a poet yeah, we're just <laughs> yeah. making up our stories about whatever yeah. happened right that's luckily we get to do it as part of our work so <laughs> exactly what feeds your creative life First and foremost, nature, being out in the natural world, being part of the rhythms of the seasons, the ocean. I live in the Boston area, so I get to go to visit the Atlantic Ocean pretty often. Such a force, you know, such a powerful force. And it's so vast. Every time I come back from the ocean, I feel renewed. Like my well of creativity has been filled up. As part of that and beyond that, like being in my body, uh, mm-hmm. when I'm when I'm very present in my body, able to really take in the whole world with all of my senses and not just like live in my brain up here <laughs> and walk around as if I didn't have a body, but when I'm really able to experience the world through the sensation and the sensory pleasures of the world, that feeds my creativity the best. And then I think also being in relationship with other people, uh, other writers, other artists of color and activists and organized people who, who I like learn from and get to be in conversation about like, how do we create change in this world that desperately needs change? Yeah, and queer folk, those of us who who have been marginalized and excluded, I think there's like our communities really, like we take care of each other and we nourish each other and we feed each other as like resistance, you know, and, and it's also like a, such a generative space in, in that resistance and creation of new worlds. Yeah, that's yeah. very beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I love to ask this question last, what will you learn next? Mm, I love that question. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm always learning. <laughs> I mean, I think very practically I've been learning to grow food. Even before the pandemic started, I decided, got the message from spirit that I needed to learn how to grow food. So I am learning how to plant seeds and nourish them and help them grow into beautiful plants that feed us how to make herbal remedies. Those are the very practical things that I am, I feel like I'm such a beginner at. But beyond that, I mean, I hope that I learn really how to continue to paint the vision of the world, the kind of world that we deserve, that all of us deserve, um, which is not the world we live in right now, and how to do that better in community and how to do that in a way that brings more and more people in 
I can't say exactly what those skills will be that will help me do that, but that is, that's what I'm always kind of leaning into and working toward. That doesn't exactly answer your question. Oh, no, totally. It's, it has yeah. an intention and a focus. And I think that's the first thing we have to, the first thing and the constant thing we have to do when we're asking ourselves, what do we want to learn? Mm-hmm. It has to be connected, like you said earlier, to our values, to the vision we have for our lives and for the life of the world that we want to live in. Mm-hmm. And then we have to keep checking in with it because it's super easy in this world to get very, to, you know, I'll, I'll learn that. Wait, wait, wait I'll learn that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I love that as a, a beautiful focus to it. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us and your presence and your poetry. It was absolutely delightful. Thank you, Jen. This was really a fun conversation. I really appreciate your inviting me to, to be in conversation with you and to be part of this podcast. I'm so grateful. I wish I could have had this conversation with Tomiko before I did my own book launch for Why Bother, my last book. I launched it during the pandemic, and we had, of course, a pre-pandemic, quite intricate plan, and it was all about connection. I was going to travel around the country like I did for my first book, The Woman's Comfort Book, in 1992, and I was on the road for three months and my parents Ford tourist station wagon at the ripe age of I think 29. I wanted to do something a little shorter for sure but but go around and really reconnect with people that I have been connected with as readers for all those years but of course that did not happen and I wish that I had had some of the ideas to really rethink and expand how we can talk about our work. It's so important that we learn to embrace models of marketing and speaking up. It's an essential part of why I named this podcast Create Out Loud. I'm really curious about empowering women creators to be able to market their work more effectively and joyfully. But speaking of that, my guest next week is Lori Frankel. And one of the things that she is going to reveal as a New York Times bestselling author of the book, This is how it always is that you probably know from Reese Witherspoon choosing it after it had been out for months and being a real breakthrough book for Lori and her new book is one, two, three. It's a fantastic novel. I loved it. But Lori talks about how the writing process for her is cakewalk compared to the publishing process. So we dive into that and talk about that, as well as the super cool way that she has taught herself to write. She's never taken a writing class. So stay tuned for that next week, Lori Frankel. And in the meantime, I hope you'll pop over to jenniferloudon.com, click on the podcast link, and share this episode with some of your friends, share it on social media, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us get discovered. Okay, have a wonderful week. Create out loud. Take something away from this episode that you can use and put it in your creative toolkit. See you next week.